Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Matthew today. We're going to turn now to, to hear from the Lord. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. I hope you have your Bibles. We, you are going to need your Bibles. If you don't have a physical paper Bible, you still have time to download an app, an ESV app. We use the ESV Bible. Uh, if you already have one on your Bible, use that. Or on your phone, use that. But um, you are going to want a Bible open today. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Praise God, with God all things are possible. As we've seen, as we've been studying Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, in many ways, is about the kingdom of heaven. I hope you've seen that by now. More more specifically, it's about the good news that the king has come to bring the kingdom. And there's been this running question throughout the book of who gets to be in Messiah's kingdom and who doesn't. And who Jesus has told us gets in has been a total shock especially to the disciples. The Pharisees, remember this? The Pharisees, externally the holiest, the most devout Jews anyone has ever met, the guys who are striving to live in obedience to God so that God will return the land of Israel to the Jews, they don't get in to the kingdom. They're not good enough. Jesus said you have to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees to get into His kingdom. And meanwhile, we've seen the Gentiles, outsiders to the old kingdom of Israel, pagan Baal worshippers who used to oppress Israel, they're being brought in because of their faith in Christ. We've seen the sick, we've seen the lame, the unclean, people who would not have been allowed inside the camp of Israel in the Old Testament, they're being brought into the kingdom. In the last few weeks, As we looked in Matthew's Gospel, we've seen eunuchs welcomed into the kingdom. We've seen children welcomed into the kingdom. And in our text this morning, we have a man who in absolutely everybody's eyes is qualified for the kingdom. 
For one, he's wealthy. For most people, that meant he was blessed by God. Look, look back through the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament and notice all the wealth and the material blessings God gives to his people. When, when you read, pay attention to Abraham's wealth and Job's wealth. Read about Solomon's famous wealth. When you read the Old Testament, you will find that whenever Israel was obeying God, they were materially blessed by God. In fact, this is the way that God said it would be. Turn back to Deuteronomy 28. I want want you to see this. I'm not making this up. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verses 1 through 8. So keep your finger there in Matthew. Turn back to Deuteronomy 28. I'm going to read this for us. It's too important for us to overlook. Because this is the, the, the mentality that anyone listening to Jesus would have had. Because this is what the Bible says. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1. Go to verse 8. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God. You see that condition? If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. Those are all physical, material blessings. For Old Covenant Jewish people, and recognize that's who we're reading about here. These are people who are under the Old Covenant. Jesus hasn't died. He hasn't risen yet. For these people to have material wealth was a sign that God had shown them favor. Wealth was a sign that God deemed you worthy of material blessings. It was evidence that you were living in obedience to Him. Wealth was an outward sign of being on God's good side. Now, if you read carefully, especially in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and the prophets, you'll find that there are also unrighteous wealthy people. There are unrighteous rich people. The minor prophets are strewn with this. The prophets pronounce harsh judgments on the unrighteous rich. But the norm, the general rule, is that when God is going to make His name great in the world, in the Old Covenant, He does it through His people. He also does that in the New Covenant. But to show then that God's people, the Israelites, are more favored than, say, the Babylonians, or say that the Egyptians, God blesses them through worldly, physical, material wealth. He makes them prosper with bumper crops and expanding land territories and abundant gold and lots of children. So that's, that's what you've got to be thinking when we read this 
Because that's what everyone who's watching is thinking. This man who comes up to Jesus then, just try to get in your mind a picture of this man and what people then would have thought about him. In the eyes of everyone around him, this is a good man. He's an upstanding man. He's respected. People would have said, this man, this rich young man, is favored by God. And what's more, he's such a good man. Even with all that he has and with all that he's done, he has such a desire to please God and inherit eternal life that he goes to Jesus, good teacher Jesus, to ask him about it. And Jesus tells him, obey the law. The man says, I have obeyed the law. He hasn't murdered anyone. He's been faithful to his wife. He hasn't stolen from anyone. He's honest. He doesn't say things that aren't true about people. He takes really good care of his parents. He even cares for his neighbors. You see, he loves his neighbor as himself. So, so we're looking at this guy. This isn't Ebenezer Scrooge. This isn't Smog. This isn't Lex Luthor. In, in the eyes of the world, this is the good kind of rich man. So I want you to see, of all the candidates who have interviewed for kingdom citizenship that we've met so far in Matthew's gospel, this guy is at the top of the list. If you want, if you are designing your own ideal kingdom in the world that checks all the right boxes, you fill it with people who are obviously blessed by God, people who are obeying God. Right? That's the picture that Matthew's painting for us here. And then here's the shock of it all. Jesus says, this guy isn't in. He turns him away. That's, that's why this story has the disciples going, what in the world is going on here? Think about this from a disciple's perspective. Imagine you, 21st century, you own a company. It's starting to grow. You're hiring someone who will expand your business into new markets. So you start taking resumes. And somebody hands you, like, top choice resume. This, this, this guy, candidate, glowing credentials, graduated top of his class from Stanford, went to get his MBA from Harvard. He's run three successful startup companies. He sold them for millions he has a model marriage, beautiful family. He's raised his kids to be successful. They're successful in the world. The community loves him. He's always treated his employees well. He's humble. He's a genuinely nice guy in every way. And his integrity has never once been brought into question. He, he wants to work for your company because he sees what you're doing. He likes it. He wants to be a part of it. He's got great ideas on how to take you to the next level. You turn the page over in his resume. You look at his references. One, he's got, the, he's got the mayor of Niceville on there. He's got Rick Warren on there. He's got Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A. He is as close a perfect candidate as you could humanly be. By comparison, in the other stack, all the other candidates that you've interviewed are all lousy. They're convicted felons, some are high school dropouts, one's a registered sex offender. Their own moms won't be their references. And you pick up this golden resume, you look at it, you ask the guy a few questions, put the resume in the shredder, send him packing. And your company's bored. They look at you 
like you killed a puppy, right? That's close to what the disciples are feeling here when they see Jesus send this man away. Look at the way they respond in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they're greatly astonished, Matthew says, saying, who then can be saved? And that word greatly here, they were greatly astonished. In the Greek, that has a negative connotation to it, all right? It doesn't just mean a lot. This word usually takes on a sense of violence. So when you read the book of Acts, you get to Acts chapter 27. Paul uses this word to describe how beaten his ship was before they became shipwrecked. He says because they were violently, same word here, violently storm-tossed, they had to throw cargo off the boat to keep from sinking. Same idea here. The disciples are greatly astonished. They're violently astonished. They're not just shocked. Jesus has just pulled the football away from the man who's trying to kick it, and now Charlie Brown is walking away with his head down, and the sad music is playing. And the disciples are just like, what are you doing? They don't get it. They don't get it at all. You can almost, you can almost see the tears forming in the corners of their eyes. And you can see the, the, the veins bulging in their neck because they're so frustrated. They're bewildered. They're confused. They're angry. They're sad all at once. And they feel helpless at understanding Jesus' message. They don't understand Jesus' weird ways. And that's kind of the, the action of this story in a nutshell. That's, that's, you know, if you're watching from the side, that's what's going on here. And so we ask, what happened? Why did Jesus turn this man away? Is he crazy? Or does Jesus see something that nobody else can see? And what does this mean for us? As Americans, we're living more comfortably than more than 90% of the rest of the world, probably much higher than that. That's a conservative estimate. And those of us who, who, who come to church, who are here this morning, we're decent people, right? We love our neighbors. We love our families. In other words, we look a lot like the rich young man. So do we have any chance of getting into Messiah's kingdom if this man doesn't? Those are the big questions we're going to look at this morning, okay? Those are burning questions that we've got to address. Let's address them in order. Let's first examine why Jesus sends this man away. And to do that, we have to look carefully at the text. And we're going to begin in verse 16. That's how we do things here, verse by verse. In verse 16, this young man comes up to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. Now, don't get too caught up. I mean, we're all Reformation Baptists, but let's not get too caught up on that word, what must I do? He's not looking for some specific works that will gain him eternal life. The sense is more what is necessary, right? It's like if someone came up to you, they know you're a Christian, and they say, how do I become a Christian? That's the question this man is asking. How do I inherit eternal life? It's a good thing to ask. Right? His question isn't bad. Jesus tells him what any rabbi would tell him. Keep the law. And the man asked, what part of the law? This is an ongoing debate in Judaism. What part of the law is most important? And Jesus tells him. It's important that we pay careful attention to what Jesus tells him here, though. Because really, we have to keep all of the law. 
if we were to be perfect in God's eyes. But Jesus tells him the second part of the law, and he has a plan here with the way he responds to him. He points him to the second half. Now, if we divide the Ten Commandments into two sections, love God and love others, Jesus says, keep the love others part. In verse 20, the man says, all of these, all the love others commandments, I've kept. And then he asks that question, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? Do you hear what he's saying? How come I feel like I'm missing something? Why is it that even though I've got everything I could want, and I'm a good person, especially compared to most other people, I still feel incomplete? I'm not whole. Something's not right. And so Jesus says in verse 21, if you would be perfect... Now, word perfect means complete, whole. This says, the man says, I feel like I'm incomplete, I'm lacking something. Jesus says, well, if you want to be complete and not lacking anything, what do, I, what do you do? Get rid of everything you have. Which sounds funny, doesn't it? I, I feel incomplete, I feel like I need something more. Jesus says, no, you need something less. Get rid of everything you have, give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. So this man has kept the second part of the law. But he hasn't kept the first part. And that's what Jesus is showing him with this command. That's what Jesus is revealing to him. He hasn't kept the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The man loves his neighbor as himself. He can do the horizontal part of obeying God, but he doesn't love the Lord with all his heart and with all his mind and with all his soul. He can't do that vertical part of obedience to God. There's something else he loves more than God. There's something else he's worshiping. And Jesus, with this pointed question, or this pointed command, rather, he shows him. He shows him he's worshiping something else. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And the man cannot do it, can he? He can't do it. He is morally and spiritually incapable. He can't live out this type of obedience to God. Verse 22, when the man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He can't abandon what he loves to follow Jesus. Jesus is asking too much of him. This man can love his neighbor. He can love his family. He can love his wife. But really, if you think about it, anybody can do that. Muslims can do that, can't they? Mormons can do that. Mormons are great neighbors. My Mormon neighbor helped me cut down a big elm tree in my yard the other day. He's a good neighbor. But even atheists and pagans can love their neighbors. You don't have to be born again to to keep the love others part of the law. And Jesus sees into this man's heart. He sees this man's possessions are his God. And so he says in order for him to have eternal life, in order to be admitted into the kingdom... He's got to leave his possessions behind and follow Jesus. Notice also in verse 21, Jesus promises him treasure in heaven. So it's not a a 
He's not giving him this command that has no reward on the other side. He's offering him an exchange. He's telling him, man, there is something greater than what you have here on earth. He's, he's essentially giving him the kingdom message, the gospel. But the man can't believe it. He won't have it. His stuff is too tangible. His stuff is too real. He can see it with his eyes. And the kingdom is, is too ethereal. It's, it's uncertain. In verse 22, Matthew tells us, he can't let go of the stuff, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, he can't let go of the stuff he can see in order to grasp a hold of Jesus and the promises that he can't see. And so he walks away, sorrowful. He's grieved. He knows it. And that answers our first question, doesn't it? Jesus did see something in him that everyone else around him couldn't see. Despite all of this man's external qualifications, he's not fit for the kingdom of God. Why? He's right where he wants to be in the kingdom of the earth. He's right where he belongs. This man's God is the stuff of this world, and he wants to keep it that way. He doesn't want eternal life. He only wants this life. So Jesus says, you can keep it. That's when Jesus says in verse 23, it's exceedingly difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom. Look at the way he puts it in verse 23. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is showing us here with this that this particular young man isn't unique. By the way that the story is told, this man represents the best of all possible rich people. And yet he can't get into the kingdom. So by, by extension, if you're following Jesus' logic here, if the best of the rich people can't get into the kingdom, then all the rest of the rich people are going to have the same problem. Do you see the logic? They, they all will have a sinful bent towards trusting in their riches more than they can possibly trust in Jesus. And so when it comes down to it, when there's any conflict between Jesus and riches, and that's what Jesus' ultimatum introduces here. He's presenting a conflict to the man. Do you really want eternal life? Or do you want the stuff of this life? For the rich, when there's a conflict, they're going to choose their wealth, their security, their stuff over Jesus. And because of this, that's when Jesus says, well, it's easier, verse 24, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. And if you've ever heard that this is referring to this mysterious gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate, have you heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard this. Good, I figured a lot of us have. All right, where a camel had to get rid of its baggage and crawl on its knees through the gate, and us rich people must be humble and crawl on our knees in a similar way. That is a rumor. It's not true. It's a rumor that started sometime in the 1800s. We don't exactly know where that started, but here's the problem. There is zero, this many, this much evidence for such a gate. No archaeologist, no historian, no Bible scholar has ever found any evidence of such a gate. It sounds nice, it's a fascinating illustration, but everything in the language and in the historical application of this passage points to a camel, a real camel, that funny looking thing with the two humps or the one hump and the long neck, 
and a, a plain old sewing needle. It's impossible to get a camel through the eye of a sewing needle, and that's the whole point of what Jesus is getting at, the impossibility of the thing. Rich people have a serious, serious problem. Their heart's desire is to trust in their wealth. And Jesus is teaching, it's impossible for the rich to lay aside that desire to follow Jesus. Impossible. Like camel through the eye of a needle. Impossible. And that's the bad news. That's the sin condition. That's what prevents any rich man or woman from following Jesus. But then Jesus doesn't leave us without good news. Verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So only God can free a rich man from the overwhelming burden of trusting in wealth. That's what Jesus is getting at here. No rich man or woman can single-handedly just decide to follow Jesus. It's impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. It's impossible. It's in the text. It's impossible. Only God can free us from our idols so that we can worship Him. God must slay our idols. That's what salvation by grace is. Only God can do it. With man, it's impossible. But with God, it is possible. And that's why you see rich people like Zacchaeus following Jesus. That's why Joseph, the rich man from Arimathea, gave his family tomb as a rental, I guess, for Jesus' burial. Short weekend. That's how Barnabas and Lydia in the book of Acts followed Jesus. They received the grace of God. By His mercy, God has saved countless rich from putting their hopes and their wealth. And by His grace, He has caused them to be born again to desire Jesus more than their wealth. It's possible with God. It happens with God. And that's the big picture here. All right, so we've seen the setting, haven't we? We've seen the teaching and what's happening in, in the man's heart and why Jesus rejects him. But I had a second question, and that question was, well, how do we, as people who by any measure would be considered rich, how do we apply this to our lives? And there are a couple directions we can go here. Two extremes, and both are errors. One extreme, when we read this passage, you say, okay, well then, in order to be saved, I have to get rid of all my stuff. In other words, getting rid of all my possessions is the path to salvation. I call this the path of monkery. Monk, like monks. It's a Luther word. You guys just aren't happy this morning, are you? Or maybe it was a bad joke. So the path of monkery. All possessions are evil. They must be gotten rid of or else I cannot be saved. Now, now can people do this? Yes, people can do this. Buddhist monks do this. The most devout Jehovah's Witnesses take a vow of poverty. They do this. Martin Luther did this before he was saved. He along with with thousands of other Roman Catholic monks. And yet none of these people were saved through this action. 
None were born again into Christ. None became true followers of Christ. None were brought into the kingdom. And yet they did what Jesus said, right? They gave up their stuff. But money, possessions in and of itself, money's not the problem. On our own, we can get rid of all that we have. But what what are we doing? We would just be exchanging our stuff for self-righteousness instead. We'd still be idolatrous people. We'd still be people who don't worship God through and through, heart, mind, and soul. For, for, rich, for, for rich people, the problem isn't the money here. It's the idolatry. It's the trusting in money. It's the love of the money. So one error that we can make here is to say that all wealth is inherently evil when the Bible never says that. That would be an error. The opposite error on the other extreme when we're applying this text to us is when we read this passage, we try and wiggle our way out of it. We try to explain it away. Wave our, our, our Bible wand and just, this doesn't really mean what it says. Oh, this man has a problem with trusting in his wealth. Jesus' instruction is only for him. Or how about Jesus can't really mean this. If every rich person gave all their money away, the economy would collapse. Obviously, Jesus isn't calling us to do that. Or or we say, well, this is only for the really greedy. Right? I don't have this problem. I'm not that greedy. This message isn't really for me. The way that I deal with my money, I've got my own reasons for it. And it's, I'm good. Right? Leave me alone. And we could go on and on of all these different ways that we can qualify Jesus' teaching here out of existence. And, and the warning that Jesus is giving dies the death of a thousand qualifications. But here's what we need to see this morning. Jesus has given us a, a giant 50-foot-tall, bright yellow warning sign with flashing lights all around it, and we're zooming ahead on a curvy mountain road in the winter, and there's a hairpin turn ahead. And this passage is that sign saying, Slow down. Icy road. Sharp turn ahead. People die here. And on the other side of that icy curve is a sheer drop-off. And at the bottom of that cliff, there is a pile of wreckage as far as the eye can see. Thousands of really good church people have ignored Jesus' warning here. Thousands of people have wrecked their faith at the altar of wealth. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, the desire for wealth plunges people into ruin and destruction. Same imagery, isn't it? Plunging. Going over the edge, plunging people into ruin and destruction. And by that, he means spiritual destruction. They are outside of the faith. The desire for the security of wealth takes them away from the security of Jesus. And Jesus is warning us the same way that Paul warned Timothy. Friends, we cannot ignore Jesus' warning. We can't explain this away. It would be unfaithful for me to try and dull the edge of the sword here. 
Trusting in wealth is a dangerous and damning sin, period. And listen, many of us, many of us are either flirting with this danger or we're already trapped in its snare and we don't even know it. You see, the the sneaky thing about sin is it never feels like sin. (laughs) Never feels like we're doing something wrong. It just feels like normal life. Like, this is just my life. I'm just a a middle-class guy in San Diego. It doesn't feel like sin because we look around and everyone else is doing the same thing. For every warning that we hear, do you know what our minds do? Our sinful minds, when we hear a warning like this, our sinful minds will come up with an excuse as to why that warning doesn't apply to us. Some of you are doing it right now, aren't you? Rosaria Butterfield says, while our hearts are idle factories, our minds are excuse factories. That's what our minds are doing. We're we're coming up with excuses to defend our idol. So here's what I wanted to say. Just stop it. I don't say that very often. Stop making excuses and just accept this this passage applies to you. This passage applies to me. And if we don't heed Jesus' warning, we are going over the cliff, okay? We just accept it. Just as an illustration, as you're wrestling in your mind still over whether or not you're like the rich young man, just as an illustration, when you're considering how much to give towards missions this Christmas, just think about the the thought process that you're going through. And, And this isn't a guilt trip, okay? Right? I, I'm, I'm not trying to guilt you into giving to missions. If I were, I would have done the offertory after the sermon. But I didn't. I did it before, just to show the purity of my motives. All right? So think of this more as a heart mirror. I'm going to hold up a, a little mirror to your heart. When you make the consideration of how much you're going to give to see the gospel go to the nations, what's going through your mind? What questions are you asking? When you're searching for that number, what's the right number? Well, how much do I give? What's your process? Is it this? Uh, Well, how much leftover do I have to give this month? In other words, after my bank account has taken care of my essential needs, how much more do I have to spare for the proclamation of the gospel? You see? My, 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 I. Like the the Nemo seagulls. If, if, If you're asking the question that way, you're probably trusting your wealth more than you are God. That's a little indicator. You believe your wealth is what provides for your needs, and so your wealth is what you're trusting in to meet your needs. And so you're going to have your needs met by your wealth before you use that wealth for the glory of God. Some of us don't think twice about putting all of Christmas purchases on the credit card and paying it off in February. But squeezing out 100 bucks to see the, the gospel... Go to the nations, to people who will not otherwise hear it, that's a little bit of a pinch. Friends, that's a sign that your sense of security comes from the things that you can see. That's a sign that your sense of security comes from wealth and not from God. 
There's a lot of different mirrors we can hold up to the heart here. If money is the source of your anxiety, you've got to listen to Jesus' warning here. Because Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to me. If you think, if only I had a little more money, then Jesus' warning is for you. If you think, but I earned what I have through hard work. I deserved it. It's mine. Jesus is talking to you. If you're hedging your bets, and this is what some of us do, we kind of keep enough We give enough to make it look like we're trusting in the Lord, but we kind of keep enough on the side just in case this whole Christianity thing is is a farce. We're hedging our bets, following Jesus over here, but keeping our wealth over here, and never the twain shall meet. Friends, Jesus is warning you, too. We cannot, we cannot ignore what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching us, That to be citizens of his kingdom, our treasure has to be deposited with him in kingdom banks. Our treasure can't be here on earth. And he's telling us this because he loves us. This is not like killjoy Jesus. When you read Mark's account of this in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells this story, and he says that after the the man came to Jesus and asked him what he he must do, Jesus looked at the rich young man and loved him. He loved him and told him to sell all he has. I don't know why Matthew didn't include that. I'll ask Matthew one day. But Mark tells us what's going on in Jesus' heart when Jesus gives this command to this young man. He loved him. Jesus says what he says because he loves him. He's given this warning to us because he loves us. When a father tells his kid, don't play in the highway, it's not because he hates him. It's because he loves him. So when Jesus gives us this warning, it's because he loves us. He doesn't want us to drive off the edge of the cliff. If we'll only listen to him, if we'll follow the Spirit's lead and cut our ties with the idol of wealth, then our treasure will be with Jesus and we can follow Jesus. What we value, where where we believe our future is, where our security is, I can assure you, it's not here. If our treasure is here on earth, whatever it is, I can assure you, we're not following Jesus. You're not in the kingdom doesn't matter how good your doctrine is. You can quote all the theologians, all the good ones even. You can have an absolutely perfect doctrinal statement. You can be able to answer any of the hardest questions about Christianity. You can have a Bible verse suitable for every occasion and be a defender of the faith and still be going to hell because you're trusting in wealth more than God. And it doesn't matter how moral you are. You can serve in the church. You can serve in the homeless shelters. You can be the most famous philanthropist in all of church history and have seminaries and libraries and Bible colleges and scholarships named after you and still be going to hell if money and possessions are where you find your identity and your hope. If money is what gets you what you want, then what you ultimately want isn't Jesus. So friends, regardless of how painful Christ's warning here seems, if we ignore it, 
it will be eternally more painful for us. I can't explain Jesus' warning away. I cannot sugarcoat it. Jesus is telling us what it means to follow him. Jesus must be absolutely everything to you. Or he's nothing to you. There's a cost. There's a cost to following Jesus. There always is. There's a cost for everyone who's ever followed Jesus. Way back in chapter 8, Jesus told one man, you have to leave the comfort of your home to follow me. Why did he tell him that? Because Jesus could see in that man that the security and the predictability of his home was an idol for him. The desire for a roof over his head was keeping this man from Jesus. So Jesus said, you have to leave that behind to follow me. And right after that, he told another man, you have to leave the comfort of your family to follow me. Why? Because he could see in that man that his, his role as loyal son to his father was an idol for him. It's where that man got his identity from. And so Jesus told him, you've got to leave your father behind. Let the dead bury their dead. To follow Jesus means that Jesus becomes not just the most important thing in your life. You don't add Jesus. Jesus becomes more important than your life. Christ died to accomplish this in you. Did you know that? 2 Corinthians 5.15 Christ died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. That's what Christ's death has accomplished. This is the all of life loyalty that Jesus demands. This isn't just about money. For the rich, money is usually the problem. That's what Jesus is saying here. But for everyone else, there's something you're trusting in that Jesus is calling you to give up to follow Him. Maybe it's, maybe it's your cultural identity. Maybe it's your ethnicity. Maybe that's where your identity is. Maybe it's your achievements, what you've accomplished in this life. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your kids. We love our kids, right? Maybe it's your job. One of the issues that this year has shined a light on, by the grace of God, God is doing this for us. He has shined a light in our hearts, and we're seeing many of us have a love of safety. We have a desire for safety and health. And this, this light that 2020 is shining into our hearts is showing us that for some of us, health and safety are more important than Christ himself. And if you want to know if this is you, just ask yourself this question. Am I living to not die or am I living for Christ? Am I living to not die? Is that the point of my existence? If so, then what's happening in your heart is a desire for health and safety that is far and above your desire to love Christ. One pastor says it this way, just summarizing the message here in Matthew 19. If there is something in your life that you won't give up to follow Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus. If there's something in your life that you won't give up to follow Jesus, regardless of what it is, 
health, family, possessions. If there's anything that you won't give up to follow Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus. And that's not an exaggeration. That is the radical nature of the gospel. To follow Jesus means there's nothing you want more than Jesus. Nothing. And if you can't say that this morning, friend, the the mercy of God is revealing to you what you must do to inherit eternal life. By the mercy of God, He is calling you out of love for you. Abandon who you were and what you were about. Repent of your idolatry and come follow Jesus. I told you earlier, we we come back to the idea of how God blesses us in the new covenant. So you've got the old covenant, material, physical blessings, spiritual blessings as well. In, In the old covenant, God made His name great through earthly blessing, worldly good. He won battles for His people. He gave them wealth. He gave them prosperity. The kings of Israel were prosperous when they were obedient and brought low when they were disobedient. But friends, in the new covenant... The eternal king, the son of God, has become man and revealed himself as king of the eternal kingdom. And his obedience did not bring him earthly prosperity. His obedience cost him. It cost him the privilege of having a wife and kids. It cost him the privilege of earthly wealth. It cost him the privilege of earthly comfort. It cost him... His life. Obedience for King Jesus did not mean what it meant for King Solomon. You've got to see, friends, this King Jesus is the one who is calling us this morning. King Solomon is not calling you to come and follow after his ways. Jesus is. The one who is on his way to the cross in Matthew 19. So we shouldn't expect that a man who's on his way to the cross is on his way to to open up the floodgates of gold. He's on his way to the cross. This is the king who for now gives us, we're about to have a meal together. He gives us this simple meal, this, this communion meal. A little bread, a little cup of grape juice. That's, what, that's the wealth we get in this life from King Jesus. And it doesn't seem like much, does it? But, but in this little meal that we're about to share together, there is more spiritual nutrition packed into it than there is in, in that Thanksgiving feast you had last week. Far more. Because this meal reminds us of where this king went. Of how, how our Savior, Jesus Christ, went to His death. We're reminded that He died to free us from our slavery to sin. We're nourished knowing that he, he came to us while we were sinners. We're nourished knowing that He loves us and beckons us to leave it all behind to follow Him. And what's more, by His Spirit, He has empowered us to do that. Did you know that? He died to accomplish this, to free you from bondage to sin with what man is impossible, with what God is possible. 